Hey, and welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. We are in a series on the book of Revelation where we are seeking what God's word says to us as the church right now. Each week of the series, we will go through large portions of scripture. So if you go to scottshill.org slash revelation, you will be provided a reader's guide to keep you on track with the passages from each week's sermon. We hope this series blesses you as we look forward to the imminent return of Christ. Well, hello and welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. So glad that all of you are able to join us today. Those of you watching us online, thank you for inviting us into your home. We want to invite you into our home. We want to give you the opportunity to come and join us on a Sunday morning, either at 9.15 or 11 o'clock. So we want to give you a personal invitation. In fact, we're going to invite them together. Here's what I want you to do. On the count of three, I want all of us to shout, y'all come. I mean, we're in the South, right? Yeah, if we were up north, it might be you guys come. But right here in North Carolina, uh, we're, we're going to shout, y'all come. So on the count of three, y'all come. You ready? One, two, three. Y'all come. Boy, that's a good home welcome. So we, we, come and join us whenever you get the opportunity. want to let you know about one ministry that we're going to be looking at. Seeking God in prayer is very important, and we need some prayer warriors in the life of our church. So beginning next Sunday, if you would like to be a part of a prayer warrior team, at 11 o'clock, we're going to have a team set up in a room 120 where people will pray the entire time as we're having services. So if you want to be a part of that, and that's a ministry that you're interested in, then that's next Sunday, 11 o'clock, room 120, right down the hall behind me on your right. want to invite you to be a part of that. I'm a history buff, and I love to read about countries and history and things that, that come about. And I was, I was fascinated by Switzerland. And I've always wanted to go to Switzerland, go snow skiing, eat some of their chocolate and stuff like that. But Switzerland is mostly known for its fierce stance of neutrality. It's one of those countries that for, for generations and generations, they pride themselves on being neutral. And it actually began in 1515. They were at war with France, and France brought them a devastating blow. And after that, this small little alpine country called Switzerland decided from that point on they were no longer going to be engaged in any kind of international or global crises. They were only going to partake, take care of themselves. They were only going to practice this kind of self-preservation. And they were doing pretty good with that. And then Napoleon comes along. And Napoleon Bonaparte tries to force them to compromise their neutrality. But after his defeat in Waterloo, the surrounding countries in Europe decided it is a good idea that Switzerland would be neutral because it could be a good barrier between France and Austria. And then World War I came, and they did pretty well with it. Then World War II came. And there was a lot of pressure for them to choose a side. And they said, we will not choose our, any side. We will remain neutral. So the countries that lot around them and that, that axis of powers gave them the freedom to be able to be independent, provided that they remain neutral. And they did for the most part, except they were condemned by the world because they really were not neutral, because they were constantly trading with the Nazi Germans. And they were making money, and for this self-preservation, they couldn't remain in that neutral state. Well, then, and, and they have become since then, and, and the NATO has recognized that they are neutral, and so this is set up in Geneva. And for the most part, Switzerland has lived since 1515 as neutral people seeking to preserve themselves 
And what the world knows about Switzerland is they can never be counted on for anything except for their own preservation. I tell that story because really nobody's ever neutral. No one's ever neutral. No matter where you find yourself in life, there's no one who's fully neutral. There's no one who says, I'm really on no sides because every one of us in this room and listening to my voice has to understand there's no such thing as neutrality. We've been studying the book of Revelation and one of the things we've seen in the book of Revelation is a spiritual warfare that's taken place behind the scenes. Last week, we were looking at chapters 12 and 13, and John unveiled for us what he calls the unholy trinity. And there in chapters 12 and 13, we discovered that that unholy trinity is made up of one number one is Satan, the father of lies, who mimics the father the heavenly father. Then you've got the antichrist who has this mortal wound who mimics Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then you've got the false prophet who is pointing people to the antichrist, who is pointing people to Satan. This false prophet mimics the Holy Spirit. And within this unholy trinity, you peel back the curtains. And what we discover is from the beginning of time, there has been spiritual warfare. And a lot of it is invisible, but it manifests itself in our world every single day. And in the midst of this spiritual warfare, I want everybody to look at me. Everybody look at me. Look at me. Those at home, look at me. You're not Switzerland. You're not neutral. You are on a side. And no matter who you are, no matter what your history is, no matter what you believe, you are on a side. You're either on the side of God in a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you're on the side with Satan and worshiping the gods of this world. And now you might push back on that and say, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't worship Satan. I'm not one of those guys that lights candles and makes the pentagrams and have blood sacrifices. This is what I'm talking about. The reality is this, you're not neutral. You're on a side and not to worship Jesus is to follow the gods of the world and ultimately Satan. When we come to chapters 14 through 16, what we see in this picture is the reality is that we are all on a side. No one is neutral. Not only are humans not neutral, but there are no angelic beings who are neutral. There are no demonic beings who are neutral. Satan is not neutral. The Antichrist will not be neutral. The false prophet is not neutral. In fact, every person within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are not neutral either. And what we see in chapters 14, 15, and 16 is a picture that there's no such thing as neutrality. So here's what I want to do this morning. We're going to unpack these. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 14. We're going to run through 15 and 16. Then we're going to make some practical applications. But I want to show you from these three passages that there are six individuals and six things that are not neutral. So here's how we're going to do it. We're going to unpack those six principles, okay? So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day. I pray that you would guide me to speak truth, and Father, that you would speak to our hearts and change us as we hear the truth of your word in Jesus' name, amen.
All right, who's not neutral? Number one, believers cannot be neutral in their spiritual discipline. As believers, we cannot be neutral in our spiritual discipline. We're called to become more and more like Christ as we live our days. And this is a beautiful picture in chapter 14 of the portals of heaven. Remember, we've been going through all of the, the, bowl, the, 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 the seals and then the trumpets. The seventh trumpet hasn't blown yet. We're still in that interlude. And that seventh trumpet's about to blow. And when it blows, the seven bowl wrath judgments of God are coming, and there will be no interlude among those. It will bring the ultimate destruction to humanity and to our planet. But we're still in the interlude. And in the interlude, and all of a sudden, we're ushered into heaven. And what do we see in heaven? Here's the picture we see. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name, had his name um, and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Who are the 144,000? Remember in chapter 7, they were first introduced to us. And we are introduced to the 144,000. Some people take the 144,000 to be literal, 144,000 Jews who have been converted to Christ. Others who say, no, no, that's a picture of, of completion. And it's a picture of the church that has been redeemed through the course of time. And it's all finalized. And they're in the throne and before the throne in heaven. No matter which view you take on that, these are the people of God. And these people of God are marked with three distinctive qualities. And these three distinctive qualities were the qualities that they had while they lived on earth. And these three distinctive qualities were not neutral qualities among the people of God. Let me show you the three things that they were not neutral in. And in three times, John says, and these... He refers to these who are redeemed that did not live a neutral life for the glory of God. Here are the three things. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. You might say, well, are these people who are celibate? Are these people who have never engaged in sexual intimacy? Are these people who have never been married or anything like that? That's not what he means by that. Again, this is symbolism. God created sex. He created it as a good gift between a man and a woman in the bounds of a covenant relationship. He's not talking about that. He's talking about purity here. And here's what he's saying, that there was no neutrality in their purity. These people who were marked by God in heaven lived their lives on earth with no neutrality when it comes to purity. That means this, they didn't get involved in the immorality of the world, the impurities of the world. In, in, in a short statement, here's what it is. These were people who were sold out to holiness. These were people who sold out to purity. These were people who were sold out to want to be like God. Holiness is not perfection. Let me tell you what the word holiness means. It means you're separated to God. Holiness means this, you hate sin. 
And you hate sin so much that you would do anything to avoid it. Now, let me tell you something. It's not that you hate sin in other people. We're experts at pointing out the sin in other people, aren't we? You hate sin in your life. And one of the marks of a child of God on earth is that there is a desire for holiness and purity. And we're living in such a way that we want to avoid sin at all costs. But here's the struggle a lot of times. We all have our pet sins, don't we? Let's be honest. We all have our little pet sins. We like to pet those sins. We like to keep those sins close to us. We like to feed those sins. And we like to manage those sins. Let me tell you what sins are like. Sins are like a little kitten. They're like a little kitten. You bring that kitten home, you're so excited about that little kitten. Oh, he's so cute, I'm petting him. He's purring, and then soon that kitten starts clawing all your furniture. And then that kitten starts spitting up hairballs. And that kitten pees in your bed. And you need to put a bullet in that kitten. Was, was that okay to say? If y'all know me well, you know I did not use a puppy. But here's the point. Here's the point. The point is this. You need to hate sin so much that you want to put it to death in you. You hate sin so much that you want to avoid it. And the mark of the life that is not neutral in Christ is a life that avoids sin. And I just want to say something. Some of you are not in a fight because you're so consumed with the sins of your life. Some of you are trying to manage the sins. Some of you have secret sins that you're going to take to your grave. Some of you have sins that you're struggling with, areas of, of addiction, pornography. Maybe, maybe there's an affair of the past that you've never confessed. Maybe there are issues of your life that you have never told anyone else about. And what you're trying to do is live your life in managing that sin, keeping it down, hoping nobody ever finds it, and yet you're not free to fight the battle. And God is calling us to confess those things because it's in the presence of other people who love us and who can hold us accountable that I can tell our brother or sister, say, listen, this is an area of my life that I'm struggling with. Will you hold me accountable in this? And if we're going to be the people of God that are not neutral, we're going to be the people of God who are going to put sin to death in our lives. We cannot be neutral with purity. But there's a second thing they're not neutral in. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow him wherever he goes. You know what they're not neutral in? They're not neutral in their loyalty. They're not neutral in their loyalty. These are the ones who are willing to die for the cause of Christ. In fact, in an earlier chapter, chapter 13, verse 10, it says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. He's talking about the people of God. And if you're going to live as a people of God, if you're taken captive, so be it. If you're going to be slain, so be it. Go to your grave for the cause of Christ. And he says that these people did not care about their own lives. They were so loyal to Jesus that they were willing to go to jail for him and they were willing to lose their very lives for him. They were sold out 100% to Jesus. Now, we live in a culture today where people talk all the time in the church that I'm sold out for Jesus. I'm sold out for Jesus, but we really don't have a culture that measures that, do we? Let me tell you, in every crisis... In every crisis, you determine and you find out what people are made of. 
You find out what they're like in their character and you find out what they believe in their convictions in every crisis. And I'm thinking about what happened in this last year and the crisis of COVID as it's gone around the world and it's impacted so many different churches. And one of the things that I've said over and over in the last year that I was baffled by is a number of Christians who were just afraid to die. I've never seen believers so afraid to die. And yet here's the thing. We're saying we're going to be loyal to Jesus to the end, but we're afraid of a virus where there's a 99.97% rate of recovery. We're afraid of that. Now, I'm not, I'm not downing the fact that the virus has killed people. A dear sister in the Lord that we, many of us know who came to this church passed away this past weekend. It's real. We understand that. But here's my point. We're so afraid and we want to be in this self-preservation mode. We don't want to die for the cause of Christ that we're going to lock ourselves away and we want to protect ourselves from any kind of harm. While around the world, there are thousands of Christians today being put to death for their faith. And what are we doing? We're hiding in our little trenches with our little mask on and we got to protect our families and we got to protect our well-being and we got to protect this. We don't come to church anymore. We don't get in crowds anymore. And all of this becomes more important than putting yourself out there for the Lord Jesus. We're called to the grave for him. And I will tell you this, if we're going to be scared of a virus, then when real persecution hits the church, you're going to see a purging in the body of Christ like you've never seen. And they will be in their trenches. And it will become clear who side you're on. But here's the third thing. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they were blameless. The word first fruits literally means it could be the first gathering, or it could mean the best. But you put that together with lies, no lies, and they're blameless. That means this. They were people of integrity. There was no neutrality in their integrity. Not only did they walk in purity, not only did they walk in loyalty, but their lives matched their lips. And when people saw their lives, their lifestyle gave the credibility to what they were getting ready to say. And the problem with our churches today and the problem with believers today is there's such a differentiation between what they believe and how they live. And George Borner is saying that statistics show that there's statistically little difference between a modern-day believer and the world. And here's the problem. We want to tell people the gospel, and yet we don't even live it. And it's got to be an issue of integrity. If my lifestyle does not match my lips, then people have no reason to believe I'm credible with anything I say. We've seen enough of that in politics, haven't we? I want to prove a point to you. Everybody, everybody take your pointer finger out on your right hand or left hand, whichever one you want. I want you to stretch it as far out as you can without hitting the person in the face. If you feel tempted to, don't. <laughs> I want you to take this finger and I want you to bring it right in front of your face very slowly, just like this. Good job, y'all. And I want you to put it right here on your cheek, 
right on your cheek. How many of you do not know where your cheek is? Here's my point. Here's my point. Listen carefully. Dial it in right here. People pay more attention to what you do than what you say. People pay more attention to what you do than what you say. And if we're going to live this life of integrity, my lifestyle has to match my lips. These are the people that are marked by God. These are the people that are marked by the character of God. And I want to tell you, when you and I live lives of purity, when you and I live lives of loyalty to him, when you and I live lives of integrity, the world will know whose side you're on. The devil will know whose side you're on. And the Father knows whose side you're on. There's no neutrality when it comes to the disciplines of believers. And so God is calling us. It's almost like John is telling us to wake up. He's not telling us to woke up. He's telling us to wake up. And church, we need to wake up that if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to be the people of God, if we are going to be worth something in this spiritual warfare, then we need to be real. And we need to be real like Jesus wants us to be. I'm not talking about perfection. One of the things I love about our church is we got people from all over and different walks of life, and there are people who have failed miserably in other areas. And I love that because we're watching what God is doing is transforming broken people into whole people who still struggle with the mess of life. But we're not going to be neutral as we walk through these things. So believers cannot be neutral and self-discipline. Here's the second thing John teaches us. The church cannot be neutral in gospel proclamation. The church cannot be neutral in gospel proclamation. I want you to see how he says it in verses 6 and 7. He has another vision, and he sees an angel. And this angel is flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. So this angel's flying over and two things. Number one, there's an eternal gospel, which means the gospel of Jesus Christ is an eternal message of good news. It is true from eternity past. It will be true from eternity future that God so loved the world that he gave his only son who lived a perfect life, who died in our place, who rose on the third day and is alive today. And if anyone will trust him and surrender their lives to him, they are eternally secure and forgiven. That's the gospel. That's the eternal gospel. But then he says a second thing that's odd. He says the angel is going out and preaching the gospel. It's the only place in the scriptures where we find an angel preaching the good news. That has been the responsibility of the church and the people of God ever since the birth of the church. We see it all through the book of Acts as we studied the book of Acts together. But what this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that angelic beings are not involved in people having visions of the gospel. That's happening all over the world right now, particularly in the Muslim world. 
You know, there are Muslims all across the Middle East who are coming to faith in Christ, having visions and seeing angels and hearing scripture and the truth about the message of the gospel. But that's not the central point of here. Here's the central point is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And when we share the gospel as believers, we have divine and angelic help as we share the good news with other people. It means that we're not just doing this alone, that we have the power of the gospel, and the power of the gospel is not only the truth, but it's God's spirit intervening as we declare the truth to lost people. I would put it this way. When people share the good news of Jesus Christ, heaven is excited and hell is irritated. You hear that? When we share the good news, heaven's excited and there's a power that comes behind it. And it irritates and it incites hell against it. You want to be a troublemaker in your neighborhood in spiritual warfare? Walk down the streets every morning or every afternoon or in the middle of the day and pray for your neighbors. Pray for their salvation. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to share the good news. Walk down the street every single day and pray for people and then get to know people by name and you build this relational capital with them and you invite them into your home and you just do life together and you share Christ with them and heaven will rejoice and hell will be irritated and you will be a troublemaker for hell in your neighborhood, on the job, at school, wherever it is you go. There's the opportunity for you and me to excite heaven and bring great power in the lives of people. You know what? We cannot be like universalists. Universalists believe that everybody ultimately is going to make their way to heaven. We can't be like inclusivists. Inclusivists believe that everybody, no matter what path you're on, whether it's in Buddhism or whether it's in Hinduism, whatever it is, you can find Jesus on that path even though you don't recognize that it's him. That's inclusivism. But here's a statistic that just came out last week from Christian Post. They discovered that 70%, listen to this, 70% of evangelicals today say that Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. 70% of the church, 70% of people saying there's more than one way. And let me tell you, when we don't share the gospel, we become practical universalists. When we don't share the gospel, we become practical um, inclusivists. That means this, we don't believe in it, but because we don't share the gospel, there's no difference. And the gospel has been given to you and me to proclaim. We cannot be neutral with this message. We need to be fearless when it comes to the message of the good news of Jesus Christ because only the good news of Jesus Christ can set people free. And when we are not neutral in this, we understand that it is exclusive and it is the only message that the world needs to be transformed. When I was in seminary in New Orleans, uh, there was a big celebration that took place among the public swimming pools in the New Orleans area. They opened the public swimming pools in the summertime, and all of these people come and they swim, and they had this big party because it was the first summer in decades where no person drowned in one of the public swimming pools. So what did they do? They had a party with all the lifeguards and their families at one of the public swimming pools. 
And as they were at the public swimming pool, all the lifeguards were around the pool. Everybody's eating. There's music. There's dancing. Everybody's celebrating. And one lifeguard looks in the deep end of the pool and sees a body down there. And they jump in. They pull up a young boy who drowned surrounded by 200 lifeguards. And we say, how can that happen? It happens every day in the church. There are people on our jobs who are surrounded by spiritual lifeguards and are drowning and never hear from us. We get in our little huddles over here. We get in our little groups. We get in our little fellowships. Oh, we're having a great time. We got the life rafts, but people are drowning all around us, and we're so consumed with us four no more. And what do we do? We lose sight of what we're called to do. We cannot be neutral in the gospel. We cannot be neutral as a church when it comes to the good news of Jesus Christ. Believers are not neutral in their spiritual discipline. The church cannot be neutral in the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. But thirdly, the culture cannot be neutral in its fallen state. We live in a culture that has a fallen state and because of Adam and Eve's sin. And ever since then, we have been fallen creatures, which means that we have a sinful nature. And because of that sinful nature, we do sinful things. He mentions in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, first mention of Babylon. He says, another angel and the second followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, they're talking about Babylon, and in the people's minds who are receiving this letter in the churches of Asia, they're not thinking of Babylon the great because that that nation no longer exists as a power. They're thinking of Rome. Babylon is just simply a picture of worldly lust and worldly enticement and worldly temptations. That's all it is. And the people who received this letter were immediately thinking of Rome. Because Rome offered everything that a fallen person would pursue. They offered great entertainment. Rome had some of the best entertainment. They had the gladiator games. That squid had nothing on these gladiator games, I'll tell you. They had gladiator games. They had all kinds of plays. They had music. They had festivals. People loved the entertainment of Rome. They had free food. They would pass out bread and food almost every day. They had free sexual expression. It didn't matter what your orientation was. You had the freedom to be able to express it openly and um, completely throughout that culture. Everything that you can think that would be decadent was what Rome had. They had the option of a multitude of gods to worship. You were free in Rome, but you were depraved. And the Christians that were living there were not exempt from the temptations of Rome. They were not exempt from the allurement of Rome. They were not exempt from the allurement of the world. In fact, the world was constantly glittering and it seems appealing. It's enticing. It sounds like it would be fun and very fulfilling, but it's none of those. And what the world has to offer is the same thing that Satan offered Adam and Eve in the garden. Let me tell you, there's nothing new. Satan still uses the same plan. There's nothing creative about what he does. Remember, Eve is in the garden. 
She comes to the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and there's a serpent, and he tempts her. And she takes that fruit. And it says this before she takes the fruit. It says that she saw that it was appealing and that it would be good for taste, and it would make her like God. So she took the fruit. She ate it and gave it to her husband who was with her. The eyes, the flesh, pride of life. And then John says it some later. I mean, earlier, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Same thing. The world wants to entice you. It wants to draw you in by what you see. It wants to draw you in by what will satisfy your flesh. It will draw you in that you can be your own God and live your own life your own way. But John reminds us of this in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let me just say this. The world will never satisfy you. It'll never do it. And those who are pursuing the things of the world, what happens is you begin to demonstrate what side you're on. Paul writes to the Romans, to the believers in Rome. He says this in chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of the mind. And every believer is going to live every single day in this culture that is fallen and that is not neutral. It wants to pull you away from your loyalty to Christ. It wants to pull you away from your dying to sin. And this culture will do that and you will do one of two things. You will either be conformed to it or you're going to be transformed from it. And each of those is a choice. And you or on a side. Some of you are out of the fight even now because of all the enticements of the world and you've run after them and you've run after them and that position has not satisfied. Those possessions have not satisfied. That power that you thought that you'd get, somebody has more and the cup is always empty and there's never neutrality. So the world's not neutral. Unbelievers cannot be neutral in their response to Jesus, number four. You see, not only are believers in the church and the world not neutral, but unbelievers are not neutral. That means people who have chosen not to follow Christ are not neutral. Let me just say something. There is no neutral territory in spiritual warfare. None. And even those who may even deny Christ or delay Christ or be deceived by thinking that they are Christians, simply they believe in Jesus. The devil and the demons believe and they shudder. And here's the most sobering part of this entire passage. Here's what John says. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pulled full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Listen, he's talking futuristic about those who take the mark of the beast. There will be no, there will be no diluting of God's wrath for those who do that. But even in this culture, people who do not follow Christ are marked by the one that they follow. And when whoever you worship on this earth will determine 
what happens in eternity to you. And the picture here is this, that there is a heaven and there is a hell. Now, I want to tell you, in our culture, people don't want to talk about hell anymore. Have you noticed that? There was a commercial on TV the other day, and I thought it was fascinating. Here's what it says. When you die, are you going to heaven or not? I'm like, that kind of lost it, didn't it? When you die, are you going to heaven or not? You said, not, you know? Well, what are the other choices, Valhalla? <laughs> you know, what are the other choices? Purgatory? The good place? No, there's heaven, there's hell. And here is the picture that he paints of what happens in hell. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Torment forever and ever and ever and ever. For the person who says he's neutral, he's chosen, not Christ, but the gods of the world and Satan. And the ultimate result is an eternity separated from God in a place of torment forever and ever and ever. Now, just think about that. After a billion years in hell, you are no closer to the end than you were when you started. And people will say, I can't believe that there's a God of love who would send people to hell. Really? Really? You know what God is doing? God is allowing people to go to the place that they've already decided on this planet that they wanted nothing to do with God. I don't want him to tell me how to live my life. I don't want him to pursue, have me pursue holiness. I don't want to have my life aligned with the principles of his word. I don't want him to have any control of my life. And God says, fine, you want to be without me? Here's a place for those who want to be without me. And in his wrath, in his justice, in his righteousness, there's love. It's called the cross. Because on the cross, his full wrath was poured out. On the cross, his justice was satisfied. On the cross, the propitiation was made where all righteousness was fulfilled and it was on his son for us. Listen to me, listen to me. If you have never surrendered your life to Christ, your heart beat from this torment. If you never surrendered your life to Christ, you are heartbeat from eternity. And once you die, your eternal destiny is sealed. There's no second chance. There's no one who's going to pray you out of a purgatory. You are separated from God for all of eternity. And God wants you to know today that he loves you so much that he's poured the wrath already on his son. So that you will not be separated from him for all of eternity. And some people are saying, no, 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 you, you don't understand. I, I believe in him. And in our culture, we, we associate belief with enough, but it's not enough. It's a surrender. It's a full understanding that I'm broken and I'm sinful. And the only way that I can be reconciled to a holy God is through the gift that he has given me in his son. And right now, I bow before him. 
And some of you are saying, you're just trying to scare us with this story of hell. No, I'm not. I'm trying to help you to understand the reality of what it is. You don't scare people with truth. You set them free with truth. And this is the truth that God has. If you're here this morning, I want to plead with you that God's grace has brought you here and he's calling you to surrender, to repent, to allow the truth of his word, to loosen those resisting bolts of your soul and say, I'm yours. I'm yours. I don't have time to finish this message. But for all of you type A's and you need to fill in the blanks, let me give them to you. Jesus will not be neutral in his judgment. He won't be. And finally, all of chapter 16, God will not be neutral in his wrath. He won't be. Read the rest of it and you will see the judgment of Jesus will not be neutral. The wrath of God, he pours out the bold judgments and there are seven of them. And there is no reprise. It's complete. So what do we do? Let me just go to the end real quick. What should be our response? Number one, worship the Lamb. If you're a child of God, worship Him. Because He is just and right. And let me tell you, every judgment that He pours out is right. It's never wrong. It's always right. Let's go to the second point on that. Not only worship, but repent from your indifference. Believers, let me tell you, there's some of us in here today, you need to repent. You need to repent. Because God's calling you to some areas of your life that he's spoken to you about today. And you need to ask for forgiveness. Thirdly, endure to the end. Endure to the end. Here's what, what we know. Two times in these passages, he tells us to endure. He says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In chapter 14, verse 12, here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Endure. Stay in the fight. Do not be neutral in spiritual disciplines and with the gospel. Do not be neutral in the enticements of the world. Do not be neutral in honoring and glorifying Christ with all of your life. Walk in Him in that. And if you're not here this morning, I mean if you're not here, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, consider Jesus. He's your only hope. Your only hope. We're going to pray. Close with the song. And the song is in Christ alone. In Him alone. In Him alone do I have my trust. In Him alone do I place all of my hope in Him alone. So I'm going to ask you if you would right now to stand together. Stand together as I pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the convicting power of it. And this has been one of those that just convicted me in my own spirit this week. And Father, may you convict our own hearts. And may we declare today that it is in Christ alone. That it's only in him that we can have freedom, we can have forgiveness, we can have favor. 
And as we walk through these things, Father, may you be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by this message and you now have a desire to follow Christ or you just want to learn more about our church, I encourage you to go to scottshill.org slash next steps so that we can follow up with you. Also, if you were blessed by this message, I encourage you to share it with your friends and family on social media. God bless.